You're listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design decks for tournament play. We put our creation to the test and share our findings on the air. Today we ask the question, what is a battle? And present brews with Invasion of Gobicon. Then on the flashback we'll be looking at Omen Hawker and Training Grounds. Should the Omen Hawker be heading to Wall Street or maybe just right back to the Sally Ann where we found him? Find out today on Faithless Brewing. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Dan, and I'm joined once again by my man from up in the burning lands of Canada, the hero of the invasion of Gobicon. It's Zach Menasimble Ryle. It me. Yeah, it's weird that our country is like literally on fire in a bunch of places, but then where, my, where I'm at, it's just been cool. Like, it, it has not been able to get over uh 20 22 degrees celsius or that's like uh 1775 freedom units uh on any day which is fine by me it's great weather for biking or going for a run uh or you can hang out in my favorite outfit uh as i'm wearing now jeans and a t-shirt well i'm glad that these apocalyptic wildfires are working out so well for you maybe it's because you sent all the smoke down into the united states <laughs> With our our air quality index has been unbelievable yeah we had a big cloud here uh in in and around toronto uh, about a week ago for a couple of days and then it went away um it was actually kind of pleasant smelled like you know campfire was going on a couple doors over uh when in fact it was a cataclysmic uh result of man-made climate change Hmm. (laughs) how you doing dan (laughs) it's fine no my aging father Blessed be his health. He's sending me pictures of he can't even go outside because your your cloud that just went away is now over his house. It's literally over his house. Yeah, that, that'll happen. My cloud. It's like it's like smoking five cigars a day. It's it's terrible. What is that? That's like twenty five cigarettes at once. <laughs> well, besides the apocalyptic climate news. Uh, we've got some exciting things to talk about. We've got a new brew around build around card. We've got some uh, old news to wrap up and uh, talk about some of the testing we did on some of the decks that uh, we worked on in the last couple weeks. We've got a little got a little bit away from us, but that happens every now and then uh, during preview season. So uh, hopefully people are still excited to hear about these results and uh, a new set being released into the modern format comes out later this week, which is just bonkers to me, but the Lord of the Rings set is coming, but it doesn't affect Pioneer, and a lot of the things that we are talking about are Pioneer exclusive, so that's kind of a nice uh, way for that all to line up. Yeah, exactly. I think we'll have a classic Faithless Brewing episode here. New cards, some new decks, courtesy of David Robertson, our resident Pioneer Brewmaster, and then some testing results. Zach, I know you went deep into Omen Hawker and Training Grounds. Uh, and then, you know, our next show will flip back to modern. I think we've got some ideas already kicking around for Lord of the Rings. And if you want to hear more of that, you can go back and listen to our set review where 
myself, Zach, Emmy, went in great detail about many of these hobbits and ants and ring wraiths and such. Better detail than some uh, professionals out there. I saw one streamer that I won't name burying his face in his hands and over and over again saying, I don't believe it. I thought this card said only when your opponent casts two or uh, their second spell each turn. Of course, alluding to the Ledger Shredder-esque uh, legendary hobbit we were talking about last time. Um, ah, yes. <laughs> Who I don't Ooh, can't forget Lotho the Corrupt. Lotho, there we go, Lotho, uh, and his beloved Stone of Erech. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So go check out our thoughts on that. And if you want to see all the detailed notes, well, you can do that if you're a member of our Patreon, which you can join for as little as a dollar a month, I believe, which gives you Discord access, access to our show notes, and uh, you get to be uh, in one of the best brewing communities I've ever seen in the wonderful wide world of the internet. We do have one new patron we would like to welcome this week. That is Kendrew M. Thank you very, very much for your support. Kendrew is a crab vine enthusiast. So as a, as a fellow crab vine enjoyer, I say welcome. Welcome to the fold. I do own Venge Vines. Uh, I haven't used them yet, but I bought them in uh, concert with the Ledger Shredders that I was using the other week playing um, Pioneer Drakes. Uh, someday I'll eventually put a Venge Vine into play. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it'll happen eventually. Uh, in fact, there was a, a really interesting uh, interaction that we'll get to uh, when we get over to Lord of the Rings cards that makes me kind of excited to um, revisit some kind of Hollowvine deck. Oh, yes. All right. So that's going to be coming up today. Pioneer talking about Invasion of Gobakan. Zach, what is this card? And what is Gobakan? What's a battle? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought you said, what's that rattle? No, uh, Invasion of Gobicon is, in fact, a battle. It's a battle with the subtype Siege. Uh, we don't know what other subtypes that battles might have someday, but that's all right. All of the ones in um, March of the Machines are sieges so far. So it's one and a white for a uh, battle. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, you look at target opponent's hand. You may exile a non-land card from it for as long as that card remains exiled. Its owner may play it. A spell cast this way costs two more to cast. So you get kind of a little bit of a Thoughtseize-esque thing, but with the white mechanic that just means, yes, they can cast it eventually, um, but it's going to cost them two extra. Um, and this uh, battle has three... Uh, battle counters damage ca loyalty i don't know what these are um but it, it, if defense. you defense defense yes yeah, defense a defense okay it's defense <laughs> so it's three three defense and it flips into light shield array so this is an enchantment that says at the beginning of your end step put a plus one plus one counter on each creature that attacked this turn it also has an activated ability that says sacrifice a light shield array creatures you control gain hexproof and indestructible until end of turn so that is a hell of a kind of anthem-esque uh, effect that can also have like a selfless spirit effect. Um, so that is wonderfully powerful once once you flip it. Um, and the front side, of course, has that kind of, uh, I don't know what the, what, what's a colloquial term for this. The LSV invitational card has this ability. PVDDR invitational card. Oh, Palo, that's right. Sorry, LSV and PVDDR, I get them mixed up because they both have names that get collapsed down into acronyms for some reason. I don't think LSV has a card yet. No, I, probably not. He hasn't been the world champion since they started doing that again. 
Anywho, um, Invasion of Gobicon, uh, apparently, uh, unbeknownst to me, had uh, a, a sort of controversial little period of time. Uh, let's see, it was in between the 21st and 28th of May. Now, I'm going to go ahead and, and cast my mind back through the mists of time towards that weekend and, and the week um preceding that because i believe it was the weekend of like june 2nd around there uh that was when the canadian rc happened there was a lot of big pioneer events happening at the time the weeks preceding that is when this card spiked like crazy and that was the same time that that boros convoke deck was the the new hotness in pioneer people were losing their minds they were saying this is gonna be it requires bannings uh you know there's no possible way to beat this oh can you believe that they put 14 power into play on turn two i think we covered that um in depth and it felt like an overreaction at the time and it has proved to be such um And uh, the only thing that's really worthy of note is that there was a lot of back and forth between some very well-informed players on these archetypes uh, about whether this card was the most important card in many of your matchups or it was completely unplayable. Uh, People like to be divisive, especially when, uh, I don't know, the the court of public opinion gets so distracted that it doesn't matter if your take was right or wrong. Um, People probably won't even remember which side you were on as long as you took a side. So looking at the price chart, this is currently one of the most expensive regular rares from March and the Machine. You know, it started off as like a two or three dollar bulk card, but went up to five dollars, and then it spiked all the way up to twenty dollars during this uh, those heady days in in mid May. It's come back down now to about nine or ten dollars, but that's still extremely expensive for a card that, as we'll see, is actually quite controversial. I'm looking at a tweet here from Andrew Ellenbogen, Pro Tour champion from june 5th he says psa invasion of gobicon is not playable in pioneer in any known deck thank you for your time then in the replies many many replies come in and say no 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 it's been so good for me in these scenarios or this deck you know spirits or whatever it was a sideboard card people have been interested in this yeah having done the research today there's an unbelievable number of um i would say results um that you can get on a, a goldfish search of people who put this into their um, mono white um, humans decks or just any kind of semi-aggressive creature based deck that you're going to play in the pioneer format. Um, and uh, the the thing is, it, it's just very, very loud because there were so many um, regional championships and similar events where every single deck list was released. So sorting through it to see uh, of the top percentage of those decks, which ones are or are not playing this, that is not a level of depth that I went into. But suffice to say that I think it's probably fine. I've seen it in main decks. I've seen it in sideboards. I've been beaten to hell by it. So it's certainly not unplayable. Um, the level of playability to which you can you know, expect it to, to pay you back... I don't know that because uh, I, I can imagine some nightmare situations where you draw like two of this and not enough threats, right? Or, or something of that nature. So yeah, exactly. So we've got three new decks that David Robertson has prepared for us. But before we dive into them, let's just make sure we understand exactly what's going on with the card and what we should be thinking about as we're exploring places that we might brew with it. Mm-hmm. So in terms of rules. Zach, I think you'd agree it's it's fairly straightforward. It's actually the exact same text on the front side as Elite Spellbinder. Yep. A mini Thoughtseize, but only for non-land cards. That card then can be played for two more mana. The backside. So this is actually one of the cheaper battles to defeat. Very few can be defeated 
uh, with just three damage. The backside is actually fairly small, right? It adds counters to each creature that attacked this turn. Um, that happens on the end step. It does not matter what the creatures attacked. So if you're envisioning that you're like a weenie deck with, you know, three or four creatures, you can just send one creature to flip the invasion of Gobakan. All of them will get a plus one plus one counter. So that's very nice. And the backside is not a creature. That's kind of the biggest thing. So it doesn't really snowball in the same way that most of the battles do, right? You don't add another piece to your attacking force. Instead, you add like this defensive tool that distributes some amount of plus one plus one counters, but it's unclear to me how much that's worth. Uh, I've seen it being a lot, a lot, a lot, Um, especially because like the the mono white humans deck or the Boros deck tend to go very, very wide, very fast, um, either with Adeline or uh, other cards that create a bunch of tokens. And having the ability to insulate your side from the sweeper that you may have put into exile on the front side and delayed, um, it kind of like teams up to be this very powerful uh, one-two punch of preventing your opponent from kind of getting on their feet or or just using a single card to three or four for one you. Um, and these decks have their own ways of generating card advantage, so this kind of lets you keep up with uh, what what might be otherwise more difficult or simplistic matchups, right? Yeah, would it be fair to say that every battle is asking you to invest time and resources into defeating it? Um, Invasion of Gobakan, like, protects your investment. The thing that you get is actually a protection for the time you spent. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's a a great way to say that. In that, like, yeah, you get something out of this, but the something you get is both, one, like, not easy to interact with as an enchantment, and two makes interacting with your other stuff uh more difficult the fact that you put in time to kill the invasion um in some cases it's like oh but you're giving them time to then you know deal with you and it's like well actually this kind of solves that problem for you in that like they can't just follow up with a wrath of god or something like that so what are the problems well the front side to me is a problem if we're comparing it to elite spellbinder we see that for just one more mana you can get a whole 3-1 flyer attached to this effect. So you're, you're really, you're not getting anything close to a card out of the front side of the invasion. You can talk yourself into it being mana neutral, like you spend two and then their, their card will eventually cost two more. But, well, A, first of all, that's not card neutral. You're down a card for that. And B, you're, you spent that mana now on an important turn. They don't have to spend uh, their mana until later, right? The tax doesn't have to be paid until they're ready to do it. So it's not like a great turn to play to just add the invasion of Gobukan to the board. And then your opponent, you know, is under no pressure. Now they, they can spend their mana on whatever else they want. It's a different story. If the card that you take is actually the one card they were hoping to play that turn. And that's kind of the swigginess of the elite spellbinder effect. Mm-hmm. It can interrupt their curve or it can just put you behind, you know, you invested something hoping it would slow them down and it actually didn't. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of situations where you're going to play this and then they're going to have two copies of the thing they wanted to play. And it's like, Oh, well, uh, <laughs> cool. Exactly. So I think that we're not really excited about this until we flip it. When we flip it, how much is that backside worth? Well, the Light Shield Array can trade one for one with spot removal. It can really protect you from a sweeper. Uh, and then there's a question of how much are those counters worth? Do we need that to be an important contribution of the card? Or is that just a bonus? Or is that like a key engine? Are we actually going to build around synergies with the plus one plus one counters? And we'll see there are different ways you can answer that based on the kind of deck you're trying to build. 
I guess the final question would be like, what is the shape of the deck going to be? Are we thinking of this as something that supports our go wide aggro strategy? You know, thinking of the the backside light shield array protecting a bunch of creatures at once from a sweeper, or do we actually want to protect just one big creature? So one thing that came up in standard when this card was was spiking was the specific combination of the uh, Ojutai and what's Ojutai's friend? Ojutai's friend. Zergo and Ojutai. So that has a powerful trigger. It's a very powerful singular threat. And there was some maybe tongue-in-cheek discussion of like, oh, this is the new Splinter Twin combo, the invasion of Gobakan plus Zergo and Ojutai. <laughs> right? Like, how, how can they ever stop this? <laughs> I've landed my dragon and I've protected the dragon and the dragon just puts me ahead more and more every turn. So if we're thinking that that works in Standard, maybe that also works in Pioneer. Just find one really important threat that can be the same threat that flips the invasion, like a Mantis Rider would be a suggestion. And then you just ride that one threat to victory with the Light Shield Array protecting it. It doesn't really interest me um, in the aggregate, if only because uh, I just don't like the idea of that uh, trigger that adds counters being applied to only one thing. It really feels like the more bodies, the the better you get. But there are there are exceptions like uh, Velomachus Lorehold, where adding to its power uh, is giving you a very real upgrade in the ability of that card to, uh, you know, have its own effect. Uh, anything with double strike, obviously, is going to be very, very powerful with that. Um, so I can't think of anything mm. off the top of my head that, you know, would be a great thing to play with that. But just playing this with, like, Fury would be obviously obscene. Um, mm. Not that you need that to be any better than it already is. But, uh, <laughs> How can we make Fury a little bit bigger? <laughs> this yeah. is, many brewers ask this question. Yeah. Now, that said, we do have the interesting synergy of processors. And I know we're going to get into one of those deck lists. So this puts it uh, in yeah. exile, which is a very specific uh, interaction, which a whole bunch of cards uh, get to take advantage of. Yeah, exactly. And maybe that's a perfect segue into what some of these lists might look like. So we're going to start with Pioneer. We've got three deck lists here. These are from the mind of David Robertson. So we'll start off with Red White Shatter Skull Charger. Shatter Skull Charger. Zach, tell me about this card and tell me how the invasion fits into a deck here. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I actually had to look this one up because uh, I certainly did not specifically or quickly remember what it does. So we've got two and a red, sorry, nope, one red red uh, for a four, three creature giant warrior. Uh, It's got a kicker of two. It's got trample and haste. If it was kicked, it enters the battlefield with a plus one, plus one counter. At the beginning of your end step, if it doesn't have a plus one, plus one counter on it, return it to its owner's hand. So what we're doing here is taking advantage of the way that Shatter Skull Charger, this uh, Viashino Sand Slasher, I believe uh, I compared it to when we were talking about it during spoiler season. Um, (laughs) uh, How this interacts with our invasion. So what we're going to be able to do is play the invasion on two, play the charger on three without its kicker cost. But it has trample and haste at four three body. So uh, assuming that they have maximum one toughness to block this with, we get to attack and flip our invasion of Gopicon, and then it's going to trigger on end step, putting the counter on it. Um, however, then yeah, this while this trigger is going to still trigger, um, which I think it wouldn't do normally. Um, when the trigger resolves, it's going to see that there is a plus one plus one counter on the charger and not return it to your hand. Yeah, exactly. You do have to stack them correctly. Yeah. But if you do that, you will not have to return the charger. You will get to keep your 
5-4 trample haste. The joy of the intervening if clause. So the question is, what do we team up uh, with this for the rest of this deck? And there's um, some very interesting choices here that can synergize with this in a couple of different ways. One of them is Kumano faces Kakazan. Um, which besides being a one-drop flips into uh, an attacking two-drop on your third turn, so you play it on turn one, uh, play the invasion on two, and then on the third turn you're attacking with this, um, which is not enough solely to flip the uh, invasion of Gobicon, but it certainly is going to help. Then we've got Phoenix Chick, which can team up with it. It's a 1-1 Flying Haste. Uh, We've got a couple of Play With Fires, the best shock in the format. we have Luminarch Aspirant, which can add counters to things during combat. Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, which, of course, generally just good. And then there's a legend here, which I can't quite read. What is this red-white legend? That is Baird, Argivian Recruiter. Red-white for a 2-2 human. At the beginning of your end step, if you control a creature with power greater than its base power, create a 1-1 white soldier creature token. So Baird, very similar to Shatterskull Charger, really wants to be surrounded with pieces that distribute the plus one, plus one counters. And Zach already mentioned three of them. He mentioned the Luminarch Aspirant, the Evasion of Gobokan, and Kumano faces Kakazan. If you time that right, the second chapter will give you a counter. So that's where we're hoping to find the critical mass of plus one, plus one counters. Yeah, Kumano into Baird uh, immediately gives you uh, a one, one token. And you're going to do that every single turn from that point on um, because your Baird has a plus one, plus one counter. Uh, and we've also got some Brutal Cathars and some Voldaren Thrillseeker. Voldaren Thrillseeker seems really fun with Shatterskull Charger um, picking up counters over and over and over again off your invasion, perhaps, um, having Trample the entire time. And then you can do that uh, combo that you see out of like the red-green vehicles deck where you've got maybe a 5-5 Shatterskull Charger. You throw an extra two counters on it by playing Voldaren Thrillseeker, attack for seven, and then dome them for seven, which is just a great way to finish a game of Pioneer. Yeah, Thrillseeker is a new addition to this deck. I think when David originally envisioned it um, during spoiler season, he had Thundering Raiju in that spot, which is a four drop. Decent card and standard, but not, not really proven. Thrillseeker, to me, feels like higher ceiling. It's going to play differently, obviously. It's a little bit more of a tricksy attrition card. But like a hobbit, tricksy little hobbit. Yes, <laughs> but it can it can do a lot of stuff with those counters. I mean, the backup is such an underexplored mechanic. I think Thrill Seeker is an underexplored card in general. So just combining it with different creatures that that care about plus one plus one counters, I think, is um, going to be really interesting to explore. Like putting those counters onto a Phoenix Chick, for example. That mm-hmm. that now gives you that three power flyer with evasion that that flips your invasion. Your evasion flips invasion. Yeah. Evasion, evasion. Goes to Gobicon. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the Phoenix Chick, they're going to try to kill that. So that's where the coming back from the graveyard comes into play, right? It, it really, it's loose synergies. Like you, yeah. you can envision exactly how the opponent's going to attack this, right? They're going to try to defang your Luminarch Aspirants and such by just destroying your other creatures. So you have nowhere to put your counters. And that's where the Phoenix Chick coming back makes a big difference. That's where Invasion of Gobokan protecting your guys makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Even Thalia just uh, slowing down their removal spells, but not herself being the most significant threat on most boards is always uh, a great boon for these decks. Um, it's also possible we could play the uh, that white one-drop with training um, that picks up counters all along the way. Uh, hopeful initiate? That's not right, but something like that. 
Yeah, that's it. Yeah, hopeful initiative. Oh, is that right? Interesting okay. idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it is just a very playable card um, that uh, also allows you to have main deck um, artifact enchantment removal that uh, makes use of the counters as a resource. Not saying we necessarily need to play it here, but it's just a good option to have. Maybe as a sideboard choice or something. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. So my concern with this deck is just that this red-white, you know, aggro mid-range is definitely just uncharted waters. We we just don't see decks like this succeed. Right. I think one of the biggest reasons is that there's no card draw to speak of. You you kind of just need to have a good distribution of lands and spells. Your creatures synergize with each other, but that also means that as each one gets picked off by stomps and fatal pushes, you know, they just get comparatively weaker. So that's going to be the challenge, I think, for a deck like this. Like when you're actually facing removal, can you successfully get to critical mass of synergies? Mm. And the hope is that both sides of the invasion will get us there, both disrupting their hands, slowing down that removal, and then protecting our, our key threats once we flip them. Well, um, spinning off the same theme, we'll, we'll hop over the black-white processor deck for just a second, I think, because it, it, I think it's important to stay in the same kind of red-white space. Uh, we'll hit these next two because we've got this red-white Pia Nalar uh, deck that is really interesting to look at and then somehow uh, uh, is only playing one copy of um, Shrapnel Blast, which when I see a card like that, I'm like, mm. and for this deck, I feel like you'd want three or four because we're just looking to kill people. Um, so this is, a, this is a lot more aggressive. This is the kind of red deck. Um, so once upon a time in Pioneer, we had like three different levels of red decks. We had the, the big chonky red. We had the, the slim fast red, as I liked to refer to it, as it was funny to uh, counterpoint chonky with slim fast because it's smaller and faster. And then there was like a middle red deck that had like chain whirlers, but that was like the height of the curve. This is a lot more that bottom of the the curve, very aggressive, full of burn spells, more similar to what you'd see in modern. But this version is playing PNLR Council of Revival. So for red white, you get a two, three legendary creature, human artificer, thopters you control have haste. Whenever you play a land from exile or cast a spell from exile, create a one, one colorless thopter artifact creature token with flying. Um, and the question is how many cards do we think that we can regularly cast from exile? Uh, in this deck, we've got, uh, three light up the stage, uh, four copies of Ren's resolve, four copies of reckless impulse and four copies of experimental synthesizer. Um, I know you wanted to read that card, but I thought I'd just grab it for you. So, um, and uh, that's teaming up with a bunch of burn spells in the form of Play With Fire, Voltage Surge, and one copy of Shrapnel Blast to kind of clear the way or maybe close out your opponent. And we've also got uh, Monastery Swiss Spear, Soul Scar Mage, Kumano Faces Kakazan. So that kind of like red prowess burn core. Um, and then two copies of Invasion of Gobacon here. So this is like not as wide as like the intentionally wide um, token decks, right? But PNLR on her own, I mean, I can envision turns where you play two or three cards from Exile. Um, especially the fact that she triggers off of lands is like A++. Um and she does not herself have haste, but Monastery Swiss Spear does. And uh, I guess I flipped Kumano Faces Kakazan comes in with haste. It's This one is like, it's neat to look at. 
I have no idea how good or how well any of this comes together, uh, but there is someone who does. Uh, Connor Man 11, he plays aggro, um, and uh, he had a very similar-ish deck. Uh, there's a little bit more, a little bit less nonsense, I would say, but that he managed to uh, pick up a trophy with, uh, and it had sideboard uh, Invasion of Gopicons. Um, so you can see the tweet is embedded here uh, in the show notes. And uh, if you want good aggro decks, especially in the Pioneer format, always check out what Connor Man 11 is working on because he loves it. So you may be wondering, what does Invasion of Gobocon have to do with this PNLR strategy? Mm. Well, the first thing it does is it protects Pia. Pia is by far the most important creature. We're playing all of these Reckless Impulse, Ren's Resolves, Light Up the Stage cards just to really go off with her. But a soft synergy that I didn't even think of until David pointed out is that when you defeat a battle, what happens? You flip it, right? Well, not exactly. Mm. It's not quite a flip. You <laughs> actually exile it, and then you cast it from exile for free. And casting from exile is exactly what Pia is looking for. Mm-hmm. So defeating the battle, winning the Battle of Gobukan, gives you a bonus stopter when Pia's in play. So it actually is part of that Pia synergy package. Um, Kumano faces Kakazan, unfortunately, does not work. Right, That, that one just transforms right it exiles and comes back transforms but it is not actually cast mm. so that will not trigger pia in terms of the differences between david's deck and connor man's deck yeah i think you hit it on the head zach just a little bit less nonsense and specifically it's experimental synth like this is this is the crux of it right david is thinking the synth does everything that pia wants it's cheap this deck is cheap it's like too good not to play and once you've decided that, then it kind of makes sense to play, you know, two Voltage Surge and that one Shrapnel Blast. For me, that's like a little bit too many conditional cards. Like, right. If I'm playing a bunch of Ren's Resolves and Reckless Impulses, I want to make sure that the vast majority of my deck can be played on any board state. And for that reason, I'm, I'm like very happy about Play With Fire, less happy about Shrapnel Blast and Voltage Surge. I'm, I'm always happy about Shrapnel Blast just because on raw power, it's obscene. Uh, I do wonder if we could get like maybe some more like, I don't know, Bomat Courier in here somewhere or like just more artifacts. Um, I know obviously there's not too many that are worth playing in the Pioneer format, but Shrapnel Blast just on rate is an obscene amount of damage. It, it just, it closes games so fast, it's it's not funny. Um, so that's always a card I'm looking to to play. But I, I feel the same way you do about Voltage Surge. It's just not my kind of card. I can't. I'm not as convinced that Shrapnel Blast is proven to be good. I think times have passed that card by. Like, sure. Compared to Tribal Flames, Tribal Flames is not like a modern staple or anything. It's like some decks can afford to do that, some can't. I almost feel like if you don't actively want to sacrifice the artifacts, then you just can't even consider Shrapnel Blast. Sure. And but only Experimental Synth clears that bar here. I guess so. Having a two-mana five-damage burn spell, though, when most of what you're throwing into it is, like, Thopters and, and Synthesizers doesn't feel too bad to me. Anyway. Yeah, it's not so much that. It's just, like, I'm envisioning that my primary thing I'm going to spend my mana on every turn is these uh, Exile 2 yes. and Play Them cards. Yeah. And, and that really means that Whatever those find, that becomes my priority for the turn. Sure. Like, absolutely. Whatever those flip, I just like want to cast them. Right. And, and Shrapnel Blast, prefer... even just being two mana, uh, all of a sudden yeah. is a is a downside there because this is gonna be Yeah. Every every turn you you uh, yeah, I mean this is a nineteen untapped land deck. So you really want to make sure that you're not running into problems where it's like, oh, I hit like too many PNLRs and other things that I can't cast here. 
One card I do want to note is in the sideboard of both David's and Connorman's deck is Showdown of the Skulls, and David actually put this on the sideboard also of the Shatter Skull Charger deck. This is often the answer to, well, what do I do against Rakdos, right? They're going to grind me down. What do I do? Showdown of the Skulls. <laughs> it's a great little card. It happens to synergize with both Pia and with Shatter Skull Charger, right? Pia will give you Thopters for playing things from Exile. The Shatter Skull Charger can pick up a counter, perhaps, from the sh Showdown, so... That's a nice little card. I would even consider going main deck with it if I really felt strongly about, you know, needing to grind. But I think it's safe to start in the sideboard. And finally, we've got our processors. So Indeed. Uh, I did see at least one Urian uh, Invasion of Gobacon deck. So uh, that lets us take advantage of the flickering trigger that uh, Urian uh, pulls off when it comes into play. However, this is a 60 card deck that's playing a main deck Urian. So what are we what are we doing here? <laughs> All right, so the key card here is Soul Partition. Are you sure? Are you sure it's not Demonic Pact? Well, okay, so there's four Demonic Pacts. So let's just get that out there first. But why why can we even consider Demonic Pact? It's because of Soul Partition. Soul Partition is one in a white instant exiled target non-land permanent for as long as that card remains exiled, its owner may play it. A spell cast by an opponent this way costs two more to cast. Now that's very tricky here, right? So if you use this to exile their thing it taxes them but if you use it to blink your own thing it does not tax you right you you get favorable uh trade deals with whatever the soul partition is so it does double duty right it can be your removal or it can be your reset button on the demonic pact mm -hmm. um, it can also reset something like a wasteland strangler wasteland strangler that's interesting so wasteland strangler that's that processor it's like a fine two for one eventually, but if you're if you're being really clever about it, if you're using a card like Elite Spellbinder, like Invasion of Gobokan, or like Soul Partition, if you process one of their cards in exile that was actually supposed to come back to the battlefield, you're getting like a three for one now off your Wasteland Strangler. Is that right? You you killed like two of their creatures and you have a three two left over. Yep, absolutely. So that's really what this deck is trying to do. Like that's that's the plays that make this deck feel like, ooh, hey, that's powerful, that's cool. The rest of the cards here are just supporting rule, right? Like you have Thoughtseize, Push, I see Vanishing Verse here, um, Temporary Lockdown, uh, there's a single Rite of Oblivion. You do need these ways to, these get out of Demonic Pact clauses. So the Rite of Oblivion can be that, Sacrificing the Pact. Uh, I believe Vanishing Verse can also target your own Pact in a pinch. I assume so, but it is one of those modern, yes it can. Okay, so yeah, there. When it's time to, there's lots of ways to deal with your demonic pact killing you. Exactly, uh, and then you know you do have to kill them eventually. So there's a wandering emperor, a Urian, and a couple of graveyard trespassers. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this is within the realm of uh, black, white, mid range decks that have been uh, playable in the modern format. These are always fun. Uh, these kind of deck lists, I always have a really good time playing with Demonic Pact, and it's kind of like a, it's like that fun, challenging level of combo deck where when you do beat your opponent with it, I, I feel like nobody's ever really been that frustrated or upset by losing to Demonic Pact. It's just so slow and fair. Um, this isn't trying to get anything cute where we donate it. It's just using the power of this four mana enchantment that gives you a lot of value uh, over the couple turns and then just resetting it over and over again. Exactly. I think that's, that's fairly clever. What's going to hold this deck back is you only get to play four copies of Wasteland Strangler and there really isn't a second processor that we can feel good about. You know, if, if we knew we would have access every game to Wasteland Strangler, then we could really feel good every time we draw a soul partition or draw an invasion of Gobicon. Mm. 
Um, there's elite spellbinders here on the sideboard. Uh, without that, I'm like, man, I hope I draw the Strangler, but if not, I'm just, you know, <laughs> just buying time with the Soul Partition or maybe blinking my own thing. Yeah, if you wanted to add blue, you can play the, the counter Eldrazi, but it does require two things to be in exile, and that's a very different ask than everything in this deck is doing. Um, so that's like, to me, in my mind, that's like the next best playable one of mm. these processors, and it it really is a very different card because two things in exile is much more taxing is it's a little bit more difficult to guarantee you'll have that yeah i guess temporary lockdown is is the only card yeah. that can really exile a bunch of stuff at once yeah all right well that's three different looks at the invasion of gobacon i think none of these are what the, you know the designers of the invasion had in mind i think it's one of those cards that it's priced to just be a supporting player mm-hmm. in you know aggressive decks and you can definitely find decks like that like you know, mono white humans or something or Boros convoke. Yep. But I think as, as a brewing exercise, trying to see what unique properties does the invasion bring to the table. Uh, I think these are the three directions I would explore. And as an aside, I mean, that to me is the heart and soul of what David likes about pioneer is uh, it exists in a way that modern used to in that nothing is designed to be put together in this way, you just look at what cards are in the format and you go, how can we possibly combine these in ways that they were never meant to go together, right? It's not just the best of standards that have happened. It's like, oh, well, this card from this set like eight years ago and this card from this new set uh, team up in unexpected ways. Well said. Yeah. Um, also to to uh, cover a point that we, we skipped over at the most appropriate time. Uh, what the hell is Gobacon? Uh, Gobacon is the plane where Teo the Shield Mage came from, uh, who was one of ah, the yes. protagonists of the War of the Spark novel, which I have sitting next to me. Uh, it is one of the worst books I've ever read, but Teo's role is to be a character who's pulled from uh, a plane. He, it was his very first planeswalk is into the War of the Spark, and so he serves as the audience um, because everyone has to explain everything about everything to this character all the time because he's brand new. So it doesn't feel tedious to the audience. Nobody's asking the question, why are they explain? Like, why is it all exposition with this character? It's like, well, cause he's new. This is you. This is you audience. <laughs> Who the hell is that? Like, Oh, he's from Gobacon. Yeah, like, exactly. Oh. <laughs> and this is his first, first ever planeswalk. And he doesn't, you know, um, and uh, so the only things we know about Gobacon from the little bits that were in that story is that it is uh, mostly sand. Uh, as far as we saw and that there are there's an order of shield mage monks and that we see them here on invasion of gobacon creating the light shield array pretty sure that lotho the corrupt sheriff spent a lot of time on gobacon you think so if i have my lore correct <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong I'm, I'm sure i'm sure it has something to do with that uh, and sauron of the many colors uh and the invasion of uh, the shire Anywho, uh, we we got some flashing back to do. Exactly. So it's nice to theory craft, but we do have to put these to the test. Test our decks live in the MTGOQs and see what happens. So our most recent brewing card was a double header. It was Training Grounds plus Omen Hawker. Two cards that they're like driving side by side. They don't work together quite as well as we'd hoped, and I think if I'm looking at these results accurately, I think they each had more success alone than they did together. Yeah. Um, I would say the number one shell and I, I commented on it some here and somewhere in my notes, the number one shell where these things came together. I played a couple of, um, blue devotion decks and it was incredibly 
uh, good to have both of them in there. I think the most powerful thing you can do with Omen Hawker in general is activate Nykthos because uh, it mm-hmm. changes Omen Hawker's mana from being uh, narrow in that it can only activate abilities to being universal. Um, and then also Nykthos always needs an input of two mana at, at the beginning. This is literally the most efficient way to do it, right? I don't, I don't think there's any card in any format that for one mana produces two mana that you can uh use to activate your nickthos so and it does and it hangs around and gives you a devotion pip which is great yeah we like to say that it taps for three with nickthos it does yeah that's actually you know kind of interesting although you're kind of down a land so it's like the omen hawker plus the nickthos tap for three all right so let's talk about those decks because this is one of the areas we were most excited for you know a friend of the show laa11 had written this uh, amazing primer on how to build blue devotion decks and he was testing his own versions of mono blue devotion with omen hawker in the discord and i think eventually got his list to a place that he liked i see a lot of parallels to what you played zach so why don't you talk us through uh, how you built these decks yeah um i personally was interested in uh a lot of the combo angles that he talked about so one of the the one of the um one of the big things you want to do in a, in any format, and David likes to talk about this, is make sure that your deck is not like a worse version overall than something else exists. Or maybe that's Mord's go-to. Um, one of the things I was pointing out uh, to someone who was coming in and talking while we were playing the Mono Blue Devotion deck is that there already exists uh, a Devotion deck that's very, very good in Pioneer, of course, the Mono Green Devotion deck. Uh, so the question is, what do you do that is different than the mono green deck? Uh, one of the most important things is to have some stack interaction. Um, there's copies of Make Disappear in here. Um, one of the other things is to have a, a combo kill. Um, now, the mono green devotion deck has a combo kill. Um, this one does as well. But the one that I was taking advantage of was Wizard Class plus Benthic Biomancer alongside Thassa's Oracle. So that's a uh, you win the game uh, combo that uh, is... Uh, assisted by both omen hawker and training grounds not so much training grounds in that particular combo but training grounds folds into the rest of the deck in a really powerful way i would say law one one uh was more willing to play cards that were that are uh like blanket powerful cards that don't synergize in any way with what you're doing uh although i guess they synergize with themselves so what am i talking about i'm talking about risen reef and master of waves um that was in the the blue devotion deck uh that i have here in front of me um that's just a combination cards even master of waves on its own that i'm just like not interested in um personally uh, it just didn't fit anything with the style that i was looking to do here um so i just iterated twice through these decks i thought they were really really strong uh, the most powerful thing that i found was playing a reality chip so reality chip um is that future sight effect once it's equipped to one of your creatures and both omen hawker and training grounds make this very cheap to equip um mm-hmm. it, it gets around the uh training grounds being awkward uh sometimes with the fact that reality chip comes in as a creature and it equips as a creature so it is reduced by training grounds and playing reality chip with this deck was incredibly powerful the other two cards i really liked with training grounds in particular are spectral sailor and hypnotic grifter uh you can see by the the second iteration of this deck i went up to three hypnotic grifters but hypnotic grifter um has a three generic mana ability to connive it's a one two for one mana and so when you have a training grounds that becomes one mana connive 
which is really good. Um, and Spectral Sailor, of course, can be one and a blue to uh, draw a card if you have a train grounds, or even just blue draw a card if you have two. Um, so those are just like great little cogs in these machines that you're going to see in a lot of the decks I built. Because if you're playing training grounds, that really seem to be one of the most powerful sort of like low investment cards that could be uh, great glue. Yeah. So how did you find the wizard class combo? Right. This is a card that is actually nerfed or sorry, buffed on alchemy. Like they, they felt like wizard class was just too expensive and they <laughs> made it too mad cheaper on magic arena. Oh, like the third chapter they did. Yeah. So they feel like they got that. They got it wrong when they priced wizard class. So did you feel that like when you were playing this, did you feel like a oh, wizard class? This is just like a, not so much. Um, I will say that the third chapter like didn't come up outside of comboing very much at all. Um, okay. but I think that's just indicative of the pioneer format. Like if you want to care about creature size, then the decks who do that are just going to do that so much better than you. Um, and it is like a five mana investment. So you can't just do it like flippantly, right? You don't have a lot of situations where you could just do that. Um, a lot of the times when I lost, it would be like just very, very close situations where I could either dig deeper through my deck or spend the five on the the wizard class, but not necessarily both. So maybe it being a little cheaper would have helped me in a couple of cases, but overall it, it felt fine. Uh, and Omen Hawker was of course a big help in uh, assembling that as was um, the reality chip. Did you find that you were able to interact successfully with your opponents or did you find that you were more just like racing to churn through your deck, get your engine set up and find your combo? Uh, I felt like the, the first version I played was uh, a little bit more uh, successful, even though it kind of had some clunkier cards in it. Um, and the second version, I, I cut down on interaction to kind of make the engine more powerful. And I think um, just that little helping of like make disappears and brazen borrowers really did a lot to uh, let this deck be successful in the way that it was trying to be. And I guess the third main difference between what you played and what LAA 1-1 played is he was very high on Yorion. I think he felt like through all his iterations, I feel like you must have 80 cards just because Nykthos, you know, A, gives you something to do with all that Nykthos mana, mm. and B, some of the attractive Nykthos setup cards can be cards that reset. So he's playing Witching Wells, four copies, Omen of the Sea. I don't believe he's playing Wizard Class in his final version. I know he'd, he'd messed around with that, but that would be another card that you could reset for value. So that's part of it. And then that in turn makes the Risen Reef Master of Waves package more attractive. I mean, look, Risen Reef is the only green card in the entire deck. Yep. It's that powerful, that important to like the end game that we're trying to set up in LAA11's version where Master of Waves gives you an elemental for each Blue Devotion pip. If the Risen Reef isn't played, that's just like so many, so many cards. Yeah, my, I mean, my feeling was that I was building combo decks, and so, and not ones that had the world's greatest, um, like, real mid-range game plan. Um, so, Yorian just basically was never a consideration for me. So I, I, I literally couldn't tell you if it would have been beneficial or not um, in, in my construction. In fact, there are probably a few decks that I'll get to later uh, where maybe the next level is to iterate them into your index because they may benefit from that. Um, there was definitely certain cards that I was interested in testing that I just kind of never could find room for. 
Interesting. Well, should we go to those decks now, or do you have more that you want to add about? No, uh, the Blue Devotion was sort of. I wanted to cover that quickly. Actually, <laughs> we spent a little bit more time on it uh, than than my personal iterating and testing was. But I'm glad that I got to see uh, LAA one ones um, specific list, etc. Um, by the way, uh, writer, listener, patron, uh, please tell us how you, you expect us to say your name because we've been all over the place with this. It's really really starting to annoy me. Um, so, uh, the other thing that was brought up to us, uh, so one of the first versions of any of these decks that I played had Omen Hawker and it had Omen Hawker and training grounds and it had like some Reckoner bank busters. It had, um, that adaptive automaton. Uh, it was, it was a list that David put together and patchwork automaton. patchwork automaton. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, it just had a bunch of ideas that to me really, really didn't work. And Omen Hawker was a complete flop in that deck. But I think one of the things that was in that deck was the idea of this Drafna combo. Um, so I, I've written quite a chunk here in our show notes about, uh, different Drafna combo decks. Uh, either you're, you're doubling up by playing Drafna combo alongside Rona combo. Um, and I iterated a bunch on these decks. I had endless endless fun playing these um so the combo we're talking about here is mox amber plus drafna founder of latinam plus training grounds drafna founder of latinam for those who do not remember is one in a blue for a legendary creature human artificer advisor is an ability that's one in a blue return target artifact you control to its owner's hand and is three generic uh tap ability copy target artifact spell you control the copy becomes a token so with drafna training grounds and mox amber you have infinite artifact casts and infinite artifact entering the battlefield triggers and the reason that that uh matched up well with the automaton was then you have an infinitely sized um creature with ward two I just felt like the automaton was like not a great card in general. It it just it was one of those things again. If you want to have like a threat like that um, in this format, the the car the decks that are interested in interacting on that level are just going to be bigger and better than you for the most part. Um, and if you're trying to kill people with it, it's just not good enough. But there is right. It doesn't actually kill them. They can just block. Right. That's, exactly. That's and problem. we and summoning sick. So yeah. And we we had like ways to get around that. Like in theory, both those things are solvable. Right. But tra- having to solve them is just another hurdle. And it's like, what if we just played something along the lines of Altar of the Brood? So that's a one mana artifact that says whenever an artifact enters the battlefield, sorry, another permanent enters the battlefield under control, each opponent mills a card. We just mill people out with that. And uh, fairly quickly after that, I had uh, the realization that Kin and Bonder Prodigy uh, can replace Training Grounds in this combo. But also, if you get both a Training Grounds and a Kinnon, something interesting happens. Now, your Mox Amber produces infinite mana. And Kinnon has an activated ability right there written on the card that allows you to, with infinite mana, flip every single non-creature in your deck into play. Uh, if that includes at least one copy of a card I mentioned earlier, Spectral Sailor, you can now draw your entire deck and kill your opponent with anything you want. On Magic Online, it it saves time to have something efficient to do it with, uh, but that's not necessary. Like in paper, you could just, you know, uh, iterate infinitely there and, and do that. So once I realized all this was going on and that Rona, uh, the Rona combo with Retraction Helix works with Mox Amber in a sort of similar way, 
Um, I built this Saltai list here at the bottom uh, with Tyvar Jubilant Brawler uh, as a way to bring back any of your uh, two-drop creatures who were were killed at, at any point. So you have Rona, Drafna, Kinnon, um, and then uh, Training Grounds and all sorts of uh, little artifacts, Springleaf Drum, of course, great with Kinnon, uh, helps fix your colors for uh, all the, uh, you know, anything that you need to be doing here and helps you accelerate and just sort of vomit out a big board of stuff. Oftentimes, all these things team up to give you a bunch of mana to activate Spectral Sailor to dig to your combo pieces. Um, and this was reasonably successful in that version. And so then I spun that up to the, the version you'll see above it, which is just a, a Simic version, not playing Tyvar anymore because Tyvar actually didn't seem necessary at all. Uh, and I love playing uh Hullbreaker horror kin and Mox Amber. Um, I don't remember the original way that we arrived at that, Dan. I think you tried it in modern and you were having problems like clicking through the combo. And so I brought it to Pioneer playing like a Simic uh, Kinnon mana ramp deck that vomited out Hallbreaker Horrors and tried to go infinite with like Mox Ambers and Ornithopters. That was from our Hallbreaker Horror week. Yes. Because you, you and Emmy were like, this is the card. This is the card. And I still love it. I still love my lobster monster. Right. So it's interesting because, you know, back then I, I was trying to solve the issue of how do we how do we ever get the seven drop into play? We had man elves in there. I think at one point Dollhouse of Horrors was used to try to get Hullbreakers into play. Here, you know, now we have Tyvar who works so great with mana elves, right? Because every time you get to untap a, a mana elf and you know, tap it again, the mana elf has haste. Right, Tyvar is perfect there, but instead, like Tyvar's best rule, it turns out, is actually not generating mana or anything like that. It's just it's just rebuying Rona, rebuying these combo pieces. You know, you can see like why it's there. Like it makes total sense that you try the Sultai version, but I also see how like outside of exactly bringing back Rona, it doesn't really do anything good for you. Um, Rona is the only card in the deck that taps. So. Right, and so uh, Patchwork Crawler can substitute really nicely, right? Uh, as a way to take advantage of creatures who are in your graveyard yes. that you want to use. Now, it doesn't let you take advantage of Kinnon's static text. So if that's what you're looking to grab, it doesn't help you for that. But uh, there may be even more things that kind of help this deck be better than even I have put together so far. So it's interesting that you're playing three copies of your win condition. That's Altar of the Brood. Now, I know you started with like Karn the Great Creator. Yes. Uh, as one of your ways to like find the win condition. But did you just find that it was just taking too long to get Karn and do all those things and just added a lot of mana to the combo? Yeah. Uh, the, basically, that's what it was. Is like Karn just felt medium minus uh, in, in the version that I tried it in. Uh, it may be better than I think it is. Um, uh, of of note, uh, other cards that worked their way in and out with uh, the number of copies I was playing was a Moonsnare Prototype. Moonsnare Prototype is uh, is an interesting um, way to generate extra mana with Kinnon, but unfortunately in this particular version, there was just so few ways to use that colorless mana that it just felt like I didn't want to play too many copies of that card, um, even though it is kind of, it's a, it's a, pretty good card and i even had uh this version that you're looking at here has three nykthos hanging out in the mana base just because you often do put together a pretty reasonable number of devotion pips but i don't it, it's there's just a lot of candidates uh for a deck like this and a lot of slots to kind of um fill out your engine and then make sure your combo is uh, redundant enough um without 
Tyvar, now Rona can't have haste. So it is one of those things of like, well, maybe there's a good version of this that doesn't play Rona and Retraction Helix because that doesn't actually feed into the rest of the deck all that powerfully. Um, I'm not sure how to how to solve that. Um, I didn't get to any conclusion in that way yet. So here's a question for you. One thing that I thought might happen is that because you're playing Training Grounds, possibly Omen Hulker, but I see you've cut it here, you have access to the backside of Rona at a much cheaper rate than most Rona decks do. Right? Rona can be transformed by paying five and a Phyrexian. So if you pay two life, you just need five mana to flip Rona. If you have a Training Grounds, it's three mana. If you have two Training Grounds, it's one mana. And then you get this, I don't know what you would call this, like a Obliterator type Yeah, feature. Phyrexian Obliterator. Extremely powerful. It has Trample. It gets card advantage every time they try to block. Did you find that that was coming up frequently or was that just not what Rona was for? It's just not what this deck was about in any way. Um, there was like a couple times where I kind of flipped it and tried to go aggro with Rona and it, it was just unclear whether or not that that was more useful than just using Rona to rummage every turn. The number of mm. legendary spells in this deck meant that Roma, Rona could often um, loot two or three times in a turn and you when you were looking to combo... Um, that is definitely something that uh, I leaned on the side of rather than trying to just like flip it into random beatdown. There was a couple of games where without going infinite at all, I was just able to like cast a Hullbreaker Horror and a couple of spells and just flip my opponent's board back to their hand. Um, so it's an interesting thing of like the more Hullbreaker Horrors you put in this deck, the more you can um, discard them to Rona and use that as a filtering or uh, in in this case, uh, maybe Hypnotic Grifters, so that they're not like these dead, giant, clunky combo pieces. Uh, that's something that, again, I, I didn't uh, didn't quite solve. Did Drafna do anything for you besides combo? Did you ever use Drafna's other abilities? Uh, you know, in a previous version of this deck that had Reckoner Bankbuster, once I copied a Reckoner Bankbuster, so that was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but other than that, not, not typically, uh, no. Drafna's uh, three generic ability to copy an artifact didn't, didn't really come up much. Um, I can't think of too many times where it will. Uh, I think maybe I copied a Springleaf drum once, but it was just just because I could uh, rather than actually particularly contributing in any way. Interesting. Yeah. So of the combos that you were trying here, you had the Rona, Mox Amber, Retraction Helix combo. You had the Drafna, Mox Amber, Training Grounds plus a Kill Piece you paired them together. You've tried them separately. Like which one is stronger? Which one is like the core of the deck? Well, in this case, it's the, the, the one I was killing people with more, much more often was the Drafna combo. But I think part of that was that once people were aware it was a Rona deck, they weren't necessarily uh, ready for a different combo to kill them out of nowhere. So, because people would spend a lot of time like trying to solve my Rona's in, in mm. any deck list that it's in because they're aware that the Rona combo exists and they're not necessarily aware that the Drafna combo exists. I will say in terms of pure ceiling, you've seen this clip and I did throw it somewhere in these notes, but I did get a turn two kill with one of these decks, um, <laughs> which was pretty ludicrous. Um, but it was just so funny to see that my opponent was playing some kind of like five color bring to light nib visit deck and their only play in that entire game was a Triome. That's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty great. Uh, didn't didn't even know it was possible. And if you watch the clip, I'm sitting there going like, this is a turn three kill. I'm going to keep this hand. And then it's turn two. And I go, oh, uh, <laughs> I think I could just kill them here. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you need you need Drafna. You need Training Ground. Yeah, you need two Mox You need Alter of the Brood. Yeah. 
Exactly. The second Mox Amber yeah. gets you there. Yeah, two Mox Amber. The second Mox Amber was what I needed to make it a, a one shot. Still, that's a that's a that's a. If you want to play a a combo deck, uh, I would say having that kind of ceiling is never a bad thing. All right, Zach. So you played a bunch of leagues with numerous versions. What were your results, and like, what would you recommend to people if they were interested in trying? This? Well, that's that's where we kind of falls apart a little bit. I, I don't remember anything being better than a three-two, and I literally couldn't name you. I think it was the Saltai Drafna deck playing Tyvar. That was the the three-two. Most of the others were two threes. A couple of one fours uh, with the Devotion deck. So, as far as power and ability to line up against um, the Pioneer format. I'm not sure which one of these is quite there. Um, so if you want something that I feel confident is powerful and can be worked on, I would say that the Simic Drafna deck with the Hullbreaker Horrors, that's that's a great place to start in my opinion. Um, you know, gut it, change it in any way you want. I just think the, the core of playing Kinnon, Drafna, Training Grounds, Mox Amber, that package there and whatever engine you can build around it uh, has some real promise. Reality Chip is one of the most powerful things to team up with them, but I'm not 100% sure that you need to. Um, Spectral Sailor and Hypnotic Grifter both team up with this really nicely as well. Um, if you are going to play the Kennen Training Ground Draft Nut combo, make sure that you have at least one copy of Spectral Sailor in your deck somewhere or another non-human that you can use to immediately combo off. Uh, Hullbreaker Horror works too. So... These are all considerations, and this is, uh, in my opinion, like it's it's just something to sit on as like I know these pieces exist together, and uh, figuring out the best way to uh, to create the the next combo deck is um, going to be an interesting question. Much the same as you know, David for a long time had this you know Lotus Field discontinuity Stern Proctor kind of combination of cards that he was working on in different shells. And all of a sudden, someone comes along and says, well, I built a blue-white mid-range deck, and uh, it is one of the best ways to do that. Exactly. So maybe that's the last thing we want to touch on in this episode, is David also tried out the Omen Hawker concept, and he was doing it in blue-white with Lotus Field. Now, it's not the package that Zach just described. Right? We've, we've done all that. We've <laughs> sent many tickets to their deaths trying to make Sturm Proctor happen. You know, I, I wasted a lot of Pro Tour testing time trying to make that happen in Historic. So that's not what this deck is. This deck is trying to get Lotus Field into play, but doing that with the help of Omenhawker. Well, how does that work? Well, in theory, you can play the Lotus Field, cycle Nimple Obstructionist, use Omenhawker to pay for the cycling. In theory. In practice, that's just not what Nimple Obstructionist actually does. We just didn't read the card closely enough. So <laughs> we apologize to anyone who like rushed out to like buy this deck and you know put four Nimble Obstructionist in their Lotus Field deck. Don't do it doesn't work nimble obstructionist only counters the opponent's abilities only the opponent's abilities <laughs> so that was a, a bit of a miss on our part however the rest of the deck was sound in concept right so what the rest of the deck is blue white control it's hoping to eventually get the lotus field into play which means that you have like a big mana angle and one of the best things to do with a lot of mana is resolve Teferi 5, that's the Fairy Hero of Dominaria, resolve Shark Typhoons, um, just tap your Lotus Field for a 3 mana counterspell, neutralize in this case, you know, it's effortless when you have the Lotus Field going. The problem is that when you don't have the Lotus Field going, you just have these clunkers, right? Turn 2, Cycle Shark Typhoon is like a laughable play and, you know, these any Shark Typhoon deck has to just make that play a bunch of times. 
If you put Omen Hawker into the mix, all this becomes a lot more attractive, right? Turn two Shark Typhoon, but you get a 2-2 Shark out of it is a lot more attractive. Turn two Cyclone Neutralize and still have two mana left over for a Sensor or a Dovin's Veto or for playing a Reckoner Bankbuster. Yeah, that's actually pretty good. The idea of putting Omen Hawker and four copies of Reckoner Bankbuster into this kind of big mana blue-white control deck, I think it still had some promise even, even despite the miss on the Nimble Obstructionist. That being said, when David actually went and tested this, uh, well, he lost every match. <laughs> <laughs> Says here in the notes that he went 0-4. All the matches were close. He lost uh, you know, in, in three games every time. Played against Rakdos, played against Mono Blue Spirits, played against like a mid-range Mardu Yorian pile, and Boros Convoke. So kind of a, a range of aggro and attrition. And, you know, in each case, his deck almost got there, but just like fell a little bit short. I think he says here that at some point you are what your record says you are. So maybe that's just like not going to work, right? I, I think the problem is that Omen Hawker is a very attractive target for removal and you're suddenly just like opening up like a new line of attack, right? You made their removal good. You've slowed yourself down. You become easy to disrupt. Yeah, I want to reiterate that, that that was one of the first things that happened with me with cutting Omen Hawker out of a lot of the decks that I was working on. And I, I really like the combination of Training Grounds and uh, like Spectral Sailor, for example. It's like very specifically like those two cards together, I really thought were, were kind of great because you have this one mana flash creature, you can sneak it in sometimes and start drawing cards for two mana. And that's a very aggressive rate in uh, in a lot of situations, right? But I will say, like, when you when I see something like this um, and a result like this and, uh, you know, you had that, that a good statement of, like, sometimes you are what your record says you are. But with everything being a one-two, I'm like, well, maybe you were closer than you thought you were. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe this deck needs to borrow um, from his, his other technology. Just put four stern proctors in here somewhere, right? We've got two. We've got room with cutting the nimble obstructionists. And it's just generally a reasonable card in the metagame that uh, teams up with your Lotus Fields. Right, so Reckoner Bankbuster, right, that was the other four of to make the Omen Hawkers good. Mm-hmm. David found that actually it's actually only really good against specifically Rakdos, mm. and it's kind of a liability against everything else, even when you're drawing cards off Omen Hawker. So in that sense, he felt like, you know, this this package of Hawker plus Bankbuster, maybe you just can't play it in a blue-white. He actually suggested maybe maybe you need to pair that with black, you know, to have efficient interaction, thoughts use fatal push, and... Indeed, Pascal Maynard, who kind of set us down this path, um, posted a, a very similar in concept. Blue-black with Omen Hawker, with Fatal Push, with Reckoner Bankbuster. Uh, it was a deck that he was testing for the Canadian Regional Championships. I think I saw him playing at a side event also after he uh, scrubbed out of the main. But um, as so many talented players did. But uh, this is a uh, yeah, great deck to look at. Uh, one thing I will comment on Reckoner Bankbuster, because I love Reckoner Bankbuster very, very much. Um, it, it's it's like a much more, uh, let's say, aggressive um, Maze Mind Tome. But it's not uh, it's not the end-all, be-all of cards um, that just like is great in any grindy setup. It's a lot of mana. Um, and Omen Hawker does help with that, but it's like it, it can just be like a very clunky, slow draw um, so that's why you're going to see like it disappeared mostly from a lot of my lists is that if you can't consistently just crew it and if you're not interested in beating your opponent to death, um, then it's actually a lot less good. The number of times I've watched uh, Rakdos decks just 
get free value out of Reckon or Bankbuster just sitting around on the table and they're like, oh, I played a Bone Crusher Giant this turn and I can crew it and attack. Like, I think that's actually pretty integral to B- Bankbuster being successful. Um, the fact that it eventually crews itself isn't good enough uh, in the average matchup. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and in in fact, the um, is it Drake's deck that I played just last weekend that um, put two people into the top eight of a Pioneer Challenge very recently was playing three copies of Maze Mind Tome in the sideboard. No copies of Reckon or Bankbuster in the seventy five. Someone who saw me playing the deck and sideboarding those in went, "Whoa, what happened? The Bankbusters in the shop?" And I was like, "Well, <laughs> actually, that's an interesting question," and I I kind of got to think about it more um so maze mind tome can be a great option for certain types of decks especially if you're not likely to be able to crew a bank buster on its own Uh, you know don't don't discard these things just because you know it's good in a popular deck sometimes there's a very good reason why it's good in a popular deck and why a different deck might want a very different card or a similar card that is distinctly different yeah exactly and don't discard packages just because we haven't found the right shell yet like Exactly like Zach was saying, that Stern Proctor Lotus Field thing, I mean, we've been puttering around with that and mostly failing forever. And now suddenly it's the breakout deck, yeah. right? That deck ran the tables at the Canadian Regional Championship. I think it was a top seed after the Swiss. That's right. And then that, that same Blue. weekend, yes, the same weekend, his deck won the Pioneer Showcase Challenge. It's like a kind of brilliant construction, actually. Took out all the counter magic. That was like the big level up. Is like you're enabling Lotus Field. He's described it almost like a Tron deck. Like you're just trying to set up your Lotus Field yeah. Tron yeah, mana base. Correct. And Doomscar turned out to be the big upgrade there because you're not really doing anything on turn two. So you might as well just foretell that. And then Doomscar kind of makes up for like not having counter magic in the first game. So you become like this tap out mid range ramp deck that is easy to mistake for control. Um, but if you look closely, actually, you know, he's just figuring out that I'm actually not good at leaving mana up, leaving counter magic mana up when I'm also trying to play Lotus Field. So, yeah, I mean, great improvements. Great job by Patrick Wu uh, discovering that. And also just like a lesson for brewers that, you know, don't give up on something that's promising just because, you know, <laughs> it hasn't worked for a year. <laughs> doesn't mean it's not something powerful there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so with all of these delightful synergies and explorations behind us, uh, I know I'm looking towards a uh, bright future where we will, uh, have, uh, some invasion of Gobacon results. Um, and we also do for anyone who's still waiting on them, uh, we do have some Chrome host seed shark results, but, uh, Dan, I think we're going to skip over these for today. Uh, yeah. or do you want to hit those on? No, I, I was playing it in modern. So let's save that for our next show, which I think will be more about modern. Yeah, and uh, I will say I've I've faced down a Chrome Host Seed Shark in Pioneer a couple times, backed up by uh, Leyline Bindings. It's a great combo, just as uh, as you guys uh, prophesied, as you thought it might be. Although I was over able to overpower it with the uh, Chandra Turn stack, it was a a close thing. (laughs) Seed Shark gets a bad rep, but I'll have more to say about that uh, next time. Absolutely. All right, Zach. Thanks very much. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for inspiring me. And uh, everybody else out there, you can always get in touch with us at uh, the Faithless Brewing Twitter. You can hang out at uh, twitch.com slash manasymbol. Yes, .com. I'll always say .com. I don't care. It works. So type it into your search bar and you'll get to where you're trying to go. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Take care, Zach. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Faithless Brewing. 
If you enjoyed this program, you can join our family at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. Your contributions help us bring you freshly brewed episodes every week, but they'll get you Discord access, show note access, merch, and so much more. That's all for today. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. What's a battle? <laughs> Let's go.